0: So this is the third study that we're going through the book of Proverbs. We're going to be studying chapters 3 and 4 tonight. And we've. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to leave some stuff on the table. So there's a lot in here, and I, like we talked about, this is more of a synopsis type of study. And I just want to encourage you right off the bat, go back through these chapters on your own, at your own convenience. Let God speak to you through the entirety of this. And as we... Go through the book of Proverbs again. It's the kind of thing that's meant to be digested slowly over time. But as we kind of introduce certain aspects and themes and characters, that maybe that'll give you some tools when you go through it on your own to, to, uh, to get the most out of it. That's my hope. So last week, um, and this is again that, that theme that we're starting right from the beginning the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We talked about how why that's the beginning. It's not the end. That, that that reverence, that fear, that awe that we start with should progress from there to hope and to faith and eventually into love, this relationship that we have with our Father. We talked about how obedience to the, His commandments are like a crown in our life, like a pendant around our neck, those things that, that adorn our lives and identify us with our Savior. We talked about the dangers of consenting to evil of honoring the Lord and not just what we do with our money, but how we get our money. The money that he gives us. Not just how, what we do with it, but how we, how we get it and having those, those standards. And not being tempted in that way. That those should be opportunities for light and the gospel and our testimony. We talked about how God's economy is based on giving and not taking. Defending and not exploiting. And we finally, we saw wisdom crying out in the streets. And that's something that we're going to revisit down the road. Wisdom being personified, crying out in the streets. And I love that picture, meeting us in our places of work and business and just the grit of our life and not in some sanctimonious place that we, but just where we're at every single day and how these things are applicable in just the most basic ways in our life. And and that's how we should look at them. And fi- I guess I said finally last time, but this is finally. <laughs> we touched really briefly on adultery, both literally and spiritually, and the great cost of committing adultery against our spouses, but also as well as the Lord when we pursue and are seduced by the world. And that's kind of a review of last week. And, and again, some of those themes are going to come back out in, in later studies. But... Um, Let's just start, we're going to start in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And just that, a great admonition again, we hear this heart of the Father starting out, says, my son, do not forget my teaching. You could also put my daughter there, so you ladies don't feel left out. My son, my child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So we're told first and foremost not to forget, to remember, to keep the commandments. To bind them, to chain them. I get this, 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 this picture of like imprisoning them around our necks, locking them to ourselves in a sense. We're told to carve them permanently into our hearts, to inscribe them permanently into our hearts. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Samuel. Does anybody remember Samuel? The prophet Samuel? Who was devoted to the Lord when a young boy by his mother Hannah. Hannah had been barren and promised to dedicate her son to the Lord if he opened her womb. And I'll read real quick, uh, 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And we see that same kind of terminology, right? That, That in his submission to his mother, to Eli the priest, he grew. He grew. And he grew spiritually. He grew physically and eventually became the vehicle through which God would anoint King David, the progenitor of the Messiah. And that's amazing. This young boy that was just, they weren't anybody special, but this woman that came with this simple prayer. But we see as he submitted to the commandments of God and submitted his heart to God's spirit, look what God was going to use Samuel. And he was a great prophet. It was said of Samuel that not one of his words fell to the ground. And what that means is everything he said came to pass. That God had given him that gift. That, and, and I imagine he had some discernment with his words, right? Not like some of us like myself that kind of just talk all the time and everything. But that what he said meant something. That's what we're saying. But it all started with that simple prayer. started with that submission to God. And I wonder what great works the Lord has for us in such simple beginnings. In 1 Samuel, this verse we just read, it serves as a contrast to the preceding verse in 1 Samuel, which prophesies the death of Eli's disobedient sons. It says that God actually had intended to put them to death. And we're not going to get into all that aspect of what that means, but the contrast of Growing in favor with God and man and of Eli's sons and their disobedience and wasting the privilege that God had given them. And true to our text, they died prematurely at an apparent young age while Samuel grew very old in his service to God. But that, that same, that same def, uh, description, they grew in favor with God and man, favor and stature, I should say, the same thing is said of Joseph, that he was shown favor and grew you know, in, in stature in, in his environment, even though he was a slave. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, the same thing is said about him. And finally, John the Baptist, it was said about him as well. These great saints of God that we see in the Bible. But finally we see, I just say for this a second time, finally, this is the real finally, we see it said of our Lord. In Luke 2, 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's that same saying that, we, that we're reading about, that we see introduced in, in uh, Proverbs. And that passage comes after the account we have where he stayed behind in Jerusalem. His family had gone to visit Jerusalem in Passover, during Passover, as was their custom, And they take off in this great caravan apparently, but Jesus decided to stay and they find him and he says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? But it says that he came home and he submitted back to his parents and that's when he began again to grow in favor with God and man. It's an interesting thing that humility precedes that. Keeping the commandments is kind of predicated on that humility and that submission. And we know that Jesus eventually would become the Passover lamb, the very Passover lamb in that same temple. And think about that idea that he was there in his father's house and how he knew that in, what, he was 12 years old then, that like in another 20 years that he would be back in that environment and serve as the very Passover lamb and be sacrificed for our sins. The interesting thing I see in that, where well, one of the promises of keeping God's commandments, it says it's a long life, length of years, it says. And that's also a theme that's throughout Proverbs, that that's a sign of God's blessing. But we know that Jesus did not have a long earthly life, that he was a relatively young man. He's much younger than most of us, or many of us. So I don't want to put that on you guys. You're much younger than me when he gave his life in this world. In Acts eight thirty three, it talks. Then it, this is a this is a quote from Isaiah fifty three that's in Acts thirty three, but it says in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. It's talking about who. It means he didn't have any descendants, physical children. It means he was cut off at a time that would be considered. A curse from God. And yet we know that it was God's will and without his sacrifice we would have no life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life whose kingdom has no end, whose life and reign never ends. And in Revelation it talks about that, that he will have a kingdom that will never end. He will reign forever and ever and ever. And that's the long life that we've got to clue in on here. That it's not about how long we live here. And that's the blessing. See, and that's what we talked about in the first week. If you take Proverbs out of context without the light of the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ and his person and what he did, you're going to miss some of that stuff. But when you see that, then that's what we're going to clue in on. It's not about this life per se. And I think, I think most of us know that. It's not about a long life here but about a life that never ends. And the life we live here should not be counted by the amount of years, but by the quality and import of the years we're given to glorify him. You guys, I mean, I think we all understand that. It's not about how long we're here, but what we do for him while we are here so that we inherit that internal life that Jesus made possible. And again, that's this repeated theme we're going to see through Proverbs. So as we get to those passages, let's look at them kind of In that light, the light of eternal life, the light of having an impact for the kingdom and not necessarily trying to live to a hundred. You know, I heard uh, we were laughing this morning at men's breakfast. We were talking about the food that was served, which was wonderful, but it wasn't what you'd call healthy (laughs) in terms of modern healthy food, but it was good food. I mean, I, I, I ate a ton of it. And we were laughing because I read an article recently about Warren Buffett. Does everybody know who that is? Warren Buffett, this big financial guru. Um, What's he called? What's the name? The something of Omaha, the wizard of Omaha, something like, I don't know. But anyway, he's fabulously rich. He's 92 years old, guys. He's 92. He eats like a child. He eats like, he drinks five Cokes a day. He eats burgers and chips, and he has no nutritional value to his food, and he's 90, he made it to 92 years old, so that says something, I think. But in any case, he was asked one time about that, and he said, I'd gladly give up a few years of my life to, you know, eat what I want and be happy. And that's, you know, I think that's kind of profound, too, in a sense. Not, I'm not encouraging that, but again, you know, guys... To sacrifice for the wrong reasons, to get a couple extra years here, it doesn't make any sense. What are we sacrificing in terms of our eternal life to get to that place where we have assurance and security in the life to come and where our life here is an investment in that, in that, you know? So I'm going to read down the next few uh, verses. We kind of move into a different topic here. It's verses 5 through 8 if you want to follow along. And this is a really popular verse. You'll see this even, um, you'll see this in a lot of places. It's a great selection of verses, but it says Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh refreshment to your bones. And that word refreshment is literally medicine. It will be like medicine to your bones, it says. And we come back to this idea of the path, the path, the way. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the, the narrow, straight way that Jesus talks about. The way that can be hard, that can be difficult, but that leads to life. A way that has to be sought out. As we commit our lives to him, he shepherds us in this straight path. And we're told that this path is one of health, that it's medicine. And our Lord, the good shepherd, desires his sheep to be healthy, to have good food to eat, and clean water to drink. In contrast, to be wise in our own eyes to embrace evil leads us down a path of famine and thirst. Down in verse 17, we also see, speaking of wisdom, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. So down in verse 317, that's that verse. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. So addition to the promise of healing, refreshment, this path, despite difficulty, is a path of peace. And I think one of the most radical and misunderstood things that Jesus ever said is in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, 53 through 55. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. That's a really crazy thing to say. And a lot of people left when they couldn't understand that. Later on, Jesus would assure them that he wasn't speaking literally. He said, the things I'm speaking to you are spiritual. Okay, and so there are people that... Take this literally in other denominations that um, I think Pastor Sean's talked about this, where they try to transform the cracker or the bread and, and, into, and they look at those as those literal elements, but that's not what Jesus taught. But what we are taught here is the death and sacrifice of Christ for our sins are the lush green pastures, the cool, still waters, the life, provision and protection spoken of in Psalm 23. Which goes on to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He leads us. He feeds us, protects us. Even when his path passes through the dark trials of this life, he's with us. He's with us. I'm going to skip ahead to this other passage in the next chapter, that continues to elaborate on that idea and it's in chapter 4 verses 11 through 19 so just a little bit ahead of that but again just elaborating more on that idea says I have taught you the way of wisdom I have led you in the paths of uprightness when you walk your step will not be hampered and if you run you will not stumble keep hold of instruction Do not let go, guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. And these are the people we talked about in that first chapter. These people of the world that are defined simply as sinners, like we all were, like we all are. But it says they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the point here, while we subsist... On the body and blood of Christ. The sacrifice that He made for us. The symbols of His love for us. As we feed on Him and His Word, they subsist on wickedness and consume violence. We get this picture of someone engorged on evil, having an insatiable appetite for sin. And we've all heard that saying, you are what you eat. What we subsist on has a direct correlation to whether we will live or die. Often physically, but always spiritually. I read a story recently, some of you may have seen this in the news, about this vegan influencer, one of these social media influencers. This is a beautiful young lady, she lived in Malaysia. She was 39 years old, and she starved to death. She starved to death. She had thousands of followers, but she had this these, these pictures of all this lush fruit around her and she subsisted on, purely on this exotic diet of, of these fruits and, and raw vegetables and things like that. And she became more and more emaciated until she starved to death while on that diet despite being affirmed by all these people in the world. You can go look this story. I mean, this just happened recently. She was from Russia she took these pictures that, you know, that, that people thought were amazing and again gave her that affirmation in her, in her deception. She was k- literally killing herself, but she was trying to make it look like this beautiful, abundant lifestyle that she had. Again, she had thousands of thousands of followers. This is what happens when we feed on indulgence and selfishness and the lies of the world as opposed to the nourishment found in the body and blood of Jesus. Where we walk on a path of healing and peace and light, they stumble aimlessly, but intentionally in the dark. And the scariest thing, guys, about living in the dark, about being in the dark, is that you get used to it. Your eyes adjust to it. Jesus says "If the light in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? You ratchet down until you're in the dark and you think you're in the light. Just like this young girl with her diet. It's tragic. But that's what happens to people philosophically, ideologically. And we see that in our culture rampantly today. Only the light of God's Word can show us the way out. And I love this passage that says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. And the dawn is beautiful, right? It comes, the sun comes up. I was out this morning on the river, and the sun kind of comes up. It starts hitting the river, and it's just beautiful. But the sun's only about you know, 50% strength and stuff, and then it just, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And lately, it just chases us into our houses, right, and into our, into our air conditioning because it's so bright. And that's the life of the believer, whereas they're going darker and darker and darker, but yet they think they're in the light. And guys, we're the only thing that they can see. You know, those people that we love that are close to us, it's up to us to be that light to them, to show them that they are in the dark. So, let's skip back back up to chapter 3. Shift gears again. to verses 9 and 10. And I'm not, my eyes are just not up to this. I can see what's on that, but I just, I can't tell. So, but we're on the, the verse, and I'm sorry to jump around on you, Chris, but we're, we're at 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first, first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is another prevailing theme in Proverbs, but really in all of scripture. That of recognizing God as our provider and returning to him the first fruit, I can't say that tonight, the first fruits of what he provides. Now in the Old Testament's law, this was a required ordinance. This was something you had to do. The prophets would often condemn the nation of Israel in their failure to keep this command Even at one point, accusing the nation of robbing him, of stealing from God, stealing from God's work. It was from the donations of the people that the temple of God functioned. It provided sustenance for the priests, for all the the goings on there. It was their livelihood. And so as the people began to cheat God, to begin to hold back, the temple would fall into ruin and the worship of God would suffer. And that's why God hated it so much. It wasn't so much that, and, and um, it, became, it became also a hindrance at one point, and the priests began to use it for their own purposes too. So it was a multi-deal. But when it stopped, again, the temple would fall into the disrepair. And the worship of God would suffer. And to give sacrificially, to give our best, that, that word first fruits, that's so hard to say for me right now, I mean, you guys know what that means. It's the best of what you've got. It's not the leftovers. It's the best of what you've got. And I'll tell you right now, guys, I am so thankful to be part of a giving church. You know, we just recently had an elders meeting, and we are. Every time we have a meeting, we're just humbled by what God has done here and continues to do here. The missions that we've been able to support, the ministries, the things we've been able to do, And you know, our barns are full. Our vats are filled with wine, that symbol of joy and fellowship. That prosperity has allowed this small church in a small town to bless believers all over the world, and it's a miracle. And I saw that change in this church. Some of you guys know, I mean, I've been a part of this church for most of my adult life, for decades. And I remember when we weren't. We had nothing. I remember we, we were talking earlier today with Curtis when we didn't have a copy machine. You know, we didn't have like some really basic stuff. And, um, you know, there was, there was blessings in those times too, but there was also seemed to be at that time, because we didn't have anything, we were really focused on our needs. And after we came together and we began to say, you know what, we really want to like make missions a priority and as a church, we want to tithe back also. It's not just about people tithing. How can we support other ministries too? And once we did that, I'm telling you, the storehouses of heaven have opened for us and you know, thankful for, for people like you that have come and have given and, and been a part of that. I've also seen this promise fulfilled in my own life through both giving as well as receiving gifts from others. And I've also experienced the lack that comes from trying to hold on to what God has blessed me with. And it's certainly true of money, but this same thing can also be said of our time, our affections and our gifts and abilities. A great proverb in 11:24 says, "One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want." And see how kind of paradoxical that is that that's the way God works. As we're generous as we give in times of even in times of our need that God promises to give us more and more and more. And again, whether that's time, whether that's relationships, whether that's gifts or abilities or money, whatever it is, but it's completely opposite of what our instincts tell us. And rare is the financial advisor that would give such advice. <laughs> Yet, yeah, it's the absolute truth. At one point, God even dares us to believe Him in that. But as we do, that's how, again, we gain access to God's storehouses. Let's read the next one. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. This is some fun stuff, isn't it? Like We're just going through like finances, God's discipline, everything. But um, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That word discipline is translated in the ESV most often, especially in Proverbs, as instruction, instruction, discipline, instruction. Think of it like teaching. When we listen to a Bible study, we are, in effect, being disciplined. Make sense? The word discipline is also translated correction or chastening. Chastening means to make chaste, to make pure. Do you understand that? It's not to punish. Discipline, that word itself, is obviously, in our language, closely related to being a disciple. A disciple, which we all are if we follow Christ, is just one who is disciplined in the teachings of our Savior. That's what that means. One who's trained. Someone who's had their mind or their bodies corrected. It does not mean one beat into submission or abused. A lot of us have had parents that were good at punishing Not so good at training or teaching. But one thing is really clear in these passages when we read this, these words of discipline or reproof should not be interpreted as punishment or the judgment of God. The word is used as chastisement in Isaiah 53.5, where it says, speaking of Jesus prophetically, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus did this willingly and received discipline he neither needed nor deserved for our sake. We likewise submit to his discipline, his training and teaching willingly, not out of compulsion, so that it can bear fruit. That's the point, right? It's not just so we can be all lined up with, you know, it's so that we can bear fruit for his kingdom. And that same passage that we just read, don't despise the Lord's discipline, is quoted in Hebrews 12. And anytime we see that, man, that is such a great clue to his interpretation. It is the interpretation. That's what we always do. We always defer to that revelation in the New Testament to really get the full clarity of these Old Testament passages. And it says, it, it, again, it quotes it, and then leading into that passage were pointed towards Jesus and his suffering, his endurance of the cross and the shame he suffered. It then goes on to compare the discipline of the Lord with that of imperfect earthly fathers. It says we all had fathers that disciplined us, and they did the best they could, but they're not God. And we respected them. We also ought to submit to our heavenly Father. But the thing that I, you know, I'm one of these, I just, I just want to pick at this stuff sometimes. And I've really been really looking at this all this week. You know, what is this discipline? What is it? Because it, it just, it's kind of vague. It doesn't say, like, it doesn't give a specific instance. Like, you did this thing, and then this thing happens, and that's God's discipline, right? It just is kind of open-ended. To me, at least. But one thing I do know is very dangerous to view The discipline of God purely from a circumstantial outlook. Does that make sense? Trying to decipher or divine our circumstances to figure out, am I being disciplined from God? Is God angry with me? That's a really pagan idea. And we all kind of have that nature. You know, the ancient pagan gods, that's how the people looked at their gods. Like, if I'm really good, then I'll get favor from God. If I'm not, then God's going to punish me. If I give him enough, you know, sacrifices, and sheep, you know, you would see that in the Iliad, that book where, you know, there, um, there's Achilles and he's, you know, if you give me victory, I'll give you this whole bunch of stuff. And, and the gods are like, did you hear that? Okay, he's going to give me 50 bulls. If this guy over here gives me 60, then I'm going to listen to him because he loves me more. And that's the way those... And we start to view God like that, and it's not accurate at all. We start to look at our circumstances and trying to discern those things. Material gain does not always indicate God's blessing. Likewise, tragedy or trial is not necessarily a sign of God's anger. And we know that from the bulk of Scripture, from the balance of God's Scripture. So what are these clues that we're getting here in Hebrews and in this passage? Number one, it's just part of being a child of God. That God loves us and cares for us and wants to keep us trained in His ways for our good. That's the second thing, it's for our good. It's Not for God's good, it's for our good that God loves us and wants to train us in righteousness and faith. The third thing is painful. It's painful. Anybody that has any sort of training regimen at all knows it's painful. It's not easy to excel at something. But that's what God wants for us. It's not the pain of punishment, it's not the pain of being abandoned, it's not the pain of being abused. It's not the pain of raised welts and dark bruises. It's rather a pain like muscle soreness. Like fatigue from fighting a sinful world. From resisting temptation and resisting the devil. That's the pain that I think is being spoken of here. You know, the pain of being persecuted in this life. Of being embarrassed or being picked on or whatever. The pain of God's discipline is not a vindictive pain inflicted by an angry God, but rather the pain of our flesh being transformed and brought into submission to His Spirit. And such struggle and hardship is one of the truest signs of being a child of God and heir of Christ. And that's what I've come to in this, because, you know, a lot of you guys know our circumstances. We've been through a lot of pain. What is that pain? Everybody suffers pain in this life. We suffer pain from, you know, just everyday things and from bigger things. But God loves us and cares for us, and he wants those things to grow us and bear fruit for his kingdom, and I'm convinced of that. Really, that's it. Tonight, we got a quick review. Eternal life. Eternal life. Not life in this world. But life in him carries the promise of favor and good success in this world, for sure but also for eternal life. And our lives here should not be measured numerically, but rather by the import and quality of our years in regard to His kingdom. This path of life, we're going to continue to talk about the path of life. Our shepherd leads us, us, not leaves us. He doesn't leave us. He leads us. Provides us sustenance in His Word and in the green pastures of His sacrifice. He doesn't leave us in the poison, stagnant waters, or worldly diets that are devoid of spiritual value. He leads us to abundance and an abundant life. Our first fruits, guys, the first, the best, whatever it is we have to give God, it has unlimited returns. Giving not to get, because that can get twisted too, you know. God, I gave you my best. Giving not to get but rather giving freely out of faith and obedience. That's what allows us to partake of his promises. And discipline, when we submit to his word and his will, we prove to be his heirs, his children, his disciples, and it's in his discipline and instruction that we most resemble his son. That's when we most resemble Jesus Christ to the world, and that's really the whole point. Romans eight twenty nine, and I'll end with this verse. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Father, thank you for this evening. Again, thank you for your word. And in a sense, Lord, these things are so easy to just read and, and go through and hear but Lord, they're hard to do sometimes. I pray you fill us with your Spirit and help us, God, to be transformed, to make us more like you, to conform us into your image more and more each day. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.